The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Culture of the Kingdom class, where uh, this summer we've been going to be looking at um, what Jesus has to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I appreciate the fact that they took down the walls here, just in case the teaching today is so explosive, it would have blown out the wall anyway, so... So we're just kind of making some room uh, for that. Anyway, good to have you here. Um, uh, if you did not pick up a schedule for the teaching for this summer, I did bring a couple of uh, uh, schedules. You can pick one up at the back. I hope you got uh, an outline today. And uh, let's kind of dive right in. So let's pray, and then we'll begin. Our God and Father, we just thank you for your word, that it is living and active. And that it's just not information, but it's truth that transforms us from the inside out to be the people you've called us to be. And so, Lord, as we just keep coming back again to its truth, as we come back to the truth you impart in this uh, sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, I just pray that you would give us each a take-home that would allow us to uh, walk worthy of the calling that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask it for myself and for all of my friends. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So uh, kind of just let me do a brief recap to kind of bring you up to where we are today. So when we began, we talked about the fact that Jesus came teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, and that with his arrival, the kingdom of God, that space where the will and ways of God rule, had already been initiated. Its presence was attested by Jesus' teaching and miracle ministry and by the lives of those who submitted to the Lordship and had their lives changed. And then we talked about the fact that everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is a citizen of this new kingdom with its center in Jesus and all of the new loyalties and ethics that flow out of that relationship. Then we talked about the fact that the citizens of the kingdom are people with certain dispositions of heart towards God and towards others. They are people approved by God, aligned with God, in sync with God. They are the beatitude people. And then we understood from what Jesus taught that the citizens of the kingdom are to be salt and light in the world. Their unique character and calling gives them influence and purpose wherever they are. And then we get on to the whole issue of how does what Jesus teach here relate to what people there understood in terms of uh, religious life and righteousness. Um, what about the law? And so the best interpretation of what Jesus says when he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, is that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, all along were pointing to Jesus. All along, they were going to find their endpoint in Jesus Christ. And the question is not how Jesus relates to the law, but rather how the law is related to Jesus. He is the authority on the law. He knows what it means and how it works, and this is what he begins to unfold in this famous sermon. One of the things that occurred to me this week is that the old covenant, the old law, the old Torah, um, was kind of governed or enforced or regulated by the scribes and the Pharisees. They kind of decided what was in bounds and what's out of bounds. Kind of like, um, uh, by the way, the NHL playoffs are over. You all know that. Okay, okay. Just, just in case you missed it, it's over. It is so over. But the referees in a game kind of make a decision as to what's a penalty and what's not a penalty. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees did with the Old Testament law. 
But the new covenant that Jesus is talking about is enforced by the Spirit of God who lives inside of every believer. The Spirit brings the truth of God's word to bear on the intents of the heart and the actions that follow. He highlights our transgressions and trespasses and points us in the direction of repentance and confession and a renewed relationship with Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is that the old Torah based on the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, that is now fulfilled in him. And if we are law-abiding, it's not a matter about keeping outward uh, regulations. It's about walking with Jesus. When we walk with Jesus, we fulfill this new law, this new Torah of the heart, as it were. And so the whole idea all along is that God's holiness would be made known and that his expectation was that his people would be a holy people. The call is not just to holy conduct, but to holiness of character that generates holy behavior. And so in that sense, the moral teaching of the New Testament kind of corresponds to some of what we read in the Old Testament, giving expression to God's holiness in thought and action. It's a righteousness that exceeds the idea of righteousness as a result of law-keeping that was so popular amongst the people to whom Jesus preached and taught. And that's why he said, listen, if you really want to walk with God, your righteousness has got to exceed the external rule-keeping of the laws uh, of the scribes and the Pharisees. It needs to be something that is deeper and more encompassing and more embracing than that. So here in chapter 5, Jesus, the authority on the law, connects the dots between the intent of the Old Covenant and the realities of the New Covenant. He refers to some of the Ten Commandments and some of the other aspects of the Torah and describes that requirement for righteousness that exceeds the external rule. And so in the kingdom of God, righteousness starts with the heart. We're accountable for our motives as well as our behavior. Walking with God begins with getting our heart right. And so last week, we kind of looked at the first sort of case study or the first Old Testament law that Jesus kind of grabs a hold of to kind of demonstrate what it is that he means. And so we talked about anger last week and the notion that um, murder, of course, we all agree is verboten and it's off the record. But Jesus was trying to say murder doesn't start with a weapon in your hand. Murder starts when you become angry with somebody and you don't deal with the issue. You don't move towards reconciliation. And when that anger is allowed to progress, it eventually will end up in violence, whether it's physical violence or vocal violence, but somewhere along the line, anger, undealt with, catches up with you. And so Jesus said last week, when it comes to anger, deal with it quickly. It doesn't say that you'll never be angry. He just says, deal with it in the right kind of way. And so uh, I'm going to move on now to the next three case studies or the next three crossovers that he's going to introduce. And as I kind of got started on these, I kind of felt I had a bit of a tiger by the tail. Uh, these three statements, they don't take up a lot of verses in Jesus' sermon, but they have far-reaching uh, ramifications for life. It's generated all kinds of discussion and books and books and books and books books have been written on these three things we're going to try to deal with in the next 30 minutes or so. So as Jesus kind of connects the dots, we've talked about the fact that murder begins with anger. Let's move on to connection number two in chapter 5, verse 27. And the connection that Jesus wants to make here, if you're following along uh, on your outline, and by the way, if you get bored today, 
yeah, just go to the answer key at the back and just start filling in the blanks before I get to them. I, I, you, you have permission to do that, okay. So Jesus is going to make a connection now between adultery, which everybody understood, everybody knew what that meant, and where it comes from. And he says in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, that adultery begins with lust. That's what goes in the blank. The seventh commandment was, you should not commit adultery. You must not commit adultery. It's interesting that we live in a society today that puts a stronger emphasis on sexual fulfillment than it does on commitment to relationship. And as a result, there's all kinds of stories. We run into them every day of illicit sexual activity, and adultery is now winked at. It's almost like it's normal. People who dismiss adultery with a wink, uh, pulling it for happen between the hero and the heroine in movies, novels and on TV, uh, and yawn when it occur, uh, occurs in the life of, labor, uh, of, of uh, leaders, somehow or another we become desensitized to just how important God takes this particular behavior. Adultery always seems to be somebody else's problem until it happens to you or to somebody you love. God's original plan for marriage, one man committed and faithful to one woman for a lifetime, was designed to bring blessing and not to bring heartbreak. Our current culture may scoff at such narrow commitment, but it's also paying a terrible price for sexual license in terms of broken hearts, ruined marriages, and broken families, and wounded children. And so sexuality, according to the scriptures, finds its best and most wonderful expression within the context of a committed relationship guarded by the marriage vow. And so this is what Jesus says in his day. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. No problem, commandment number seven, Exodus 20, nobody was arguing, that was definitely a part of the way that God's people were supposed to walk. But this is where he starts to part company with the common way of thinking. He says, but I tell you, okay, so he's always kind of laying this comparison. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And let's keep in mind, why does Jesus, I tell you, stick? Because he fulfills the law. He's the authority on the law. He's the expert on the law. He's the one who knows what the law is all about. And so he says, you've heard it said by the scribes and the Pharisees, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That was the wake-up call. And then he goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body and then for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, you know, this is one of those moments where I'm just kind of putting myself in the position of one is Jesus' listeners, okay? And I can just sort of see them, a crowd like this, and Jesus says, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. And everybody said... Amen, amen, yeah, exactly. We're saying today what they would have said then, okay? Uh, so we're with him so far. But then he takes it a step further and uses hyperbole to really drive the point home. Now, adultery, narrowly defined, is sexual relations with anyone other than your lawful spouse. But uh, biblically, any kind of sexual activity with someone other than your spouse is a violation of the marriage covenant. And so adultery is kind of the ultimate act of betrayal in marriage. It carries with it spiritual, emotional, and social consequences. And when adultery happens, there's always collateral damage in terms of human hurt. 
In this second illustration into the nature of the kind of righteousness that pleases God, uh, he picks on the seventh commandment. He's already established it's not just the behavior, but that the motive that makes us guilty of sin. We cross the line at that point. And so adultery, and this is what goes in the blank, is birthed in the heart before it captures the will and issues forth in the act itself. We cross the line into unrighteousness the moment we begin to entertain the idea of some kind of an intimate relationship with someone other than whom we're married or with somebody who's married to someone else. Now, he puts lust right at the core of the problem. And uh, lust is that hidden kind of thing. We, we don't like to talk a lot about it. At, whenever we say lust, don't you just sort of feel a little embarrassed, you know? Uh, it's one of those terms that, uh, you know, unless you're kind of a street preacher, you know, you, you kind of feel nervous about using that word. But the Bible doesn't um, uh, have any qualms about using it. Lust is, and if you're following along in your outline, it's the attitude and the motive behind adultery. Just like anger is the motive and the attitude behind murder, now lust is the attitude and the motive behind adultery. It's the craving for sensual indulgence that often transcends the object desire. I think of that story in the Old Testament of Amnon and Tamar, his half-sister, where he essentially takes advantage of her, but once he's done that, as much as he wanted to have this relationship, he hates her after that. So once he's gotten what he wants, he throws her away. Um, Lust is kind of like that. It doesn't really deliver everything that it promises. And so lust is looking at a person with the view of possessing them or having an immoral relationship with them. And Jesus says here, when you look lustfully, this isn't talking about one glance and appreciating somebody who is attractive. This is when you start to dream and to put that person in your dreams. It's when you start to think about it day in and day out. It's when it becomes a thing that begins to catch up with you. Once you've kind of crossed that line, just like anger escalates into uh, an outward expression, so lust, if it's not dealt with, is going to escalate into an outward expression sooner or later when opportunity becomes available. And so Jesus is referring to sort of going down that slippery slope where you start fantasizing or imagining um, being intimate with someone other than the person you're married to or with somebody who's married to somebody else. Now, our media absolutely feeds into this kind of imagination. In fact, a lot of times people say, well, this is just kind of, you know, harmless, harmless, you know, wool gathering. It's no big deal. It might even be healthy. I don't know why they feel it would be healthy, but I've even heard it said that this might be a healthy thing. It kind of takes the pressure uh, and allows marriages to continue. That's not what it's been in my experience as people I have counseled. Uh, the minute you start telling yourself that story, wouldn't it be nice if, once you start telling yourself that story, eventually you start to think, well, why shouldn't that story come true? And immediately it begins to take on a life of its own. And so what does Jesus say? He says, okay, it's not just the act of adultery that causes us to you know, cross the line in terms of uh, what's acceptable before God. It's the intent. It's the root. It's the lust that kind of sets the stage towards moving to that direction. And um, these words just seem so, you know, out of touch with the world in which we live, don't they? And yet Jesus understood why God instituted uh, the marriage relationship, why God's design for sexuality was designed to help people, to protect people, to give them the best possible life. At least that was the intent. 
And so given the fact that, you know, lust is sort of the root that leads to adultery, um, what do we do about that? It's not like any of us, you know, is out of the woods here, okay? It's really hard to kind of avoid this. But somewhere along the line, this thing comes across our path. It, it just, you can't even watch a football game now without, you know, some expressions and ads, so on and so forth, that get you to start thinking in other directions. I mean, this is just the world in which we live, a very sexually charged culture. What do we do with this? If, if this is where righteousness begins, not with the outward act, but with the attitude of the heart, what do we do if we start to find ourselves going down that slippery slope? And this is where Jesus uses these two dramatic um, uh, metaphors, these two dramatic pictures. He says, okay, if your eye causes you to sin, then just pluck it out, and, uh, and, and, and then you'll have dealt with it. Um, or, if it's your right hand that causes you to sin, well, just cut it off uh, before it leads you into any difficulty. Some people have really gone over the board with what Jesus Christ has taught here. Some people have actually physically maimed themselves trying to be obedient to the scripture. But let's keep one thing certainly st straight. If you have been having lustful thoughts, what does plucking your eye out actually do about those lustful thoughts? Nothing. The eye is out, but the thoughts are still there. And if you cut off your hand, it may prevent you from following through on uh, a sinful behavior, but what has really happened in your heart? Has anything changed? No, you're just short one hand. So obviously Jesus is not saying that literally we should take this seriously because, you know, maiming yourself still doesn't deal with the core issue. But what is clear from this passage is that Jesus urges extreme action when it comes to dealing with sin. And Jesus used hyperbole here to make his point. He's not advocating physical self-mutilation here, but he's talking about ruthless discipline. If you are in a situation that has started to take you down a road, uh, the idea is to nip it in the bud. I was uh, at a um, gathering, church gathering as it so turned out, and, you know, I'm kind of a people person, and I like to talk to people, and I was in a conversation, an animated conversation, with uh, one of the women that attended the congregation where I was uh, uh, pastoring. And it was a great conversation, and uh, she was interesting, and it was an interesting conversation, and, and I just thought, wow, this is really, really going well. And, and Christine, after the evening was over, said, uh, Mick, did you know that that woman likes you? I said, great, don't we all want to be liked, you know? And uh, she said, no, no, you're not listening to me. She likes you. And what my wife was trying to communicate to me is what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Mick, don't go down this slope. Don't indulge this relationship. There's danger here. There's danger here. And I'm just helping you with this for your sake and for mine. Thank heavens for a godly wife who, or a godly husband who will speak the truth to you. So what's clear from this passage is Jesus says, when you find yourself going down that road, don't indulge it, do something about it. You're going to have to change the rules. Joseph had to run and leave his cloak behind, whatever it takes. Uh, run, run for your life, 
when it comes to lust, you don't want to let it get a hold of you. And there are two things that need to take place. There needs to be a change in thinking and a change in behavior. When it comes to thinking about it, realize where lust goes, which is nowhere. It never delivers what it promises. Like all sin, lust pays wages that sometimes can never be repaired. And then deal with the real cause of your sin. What's the real story? Why are you attracted to this person? What's the issue that is setting you up? Because that issue needs to be dealt with, whatever it is. Deal decisively and immediately with whatever is causing you to think in these ways, even if it's painful, even if it means maybe cutting off a relationship or walking away from something just so that you don't go down a road you shouldn't go down. Beware of rationalizing. And realize that lust is not the whole of your life. When, when lust kind of gets a hold of you, whether it's lust for money or another person or a job or electronics or whatever it is, or I got to have that new car. Isn't it funny how that's all you can think of? You get up in the morning and you're going to look at the car brochures because, you know, we're going to get a car and it's going to be amazing. And the next thing you know, it kind of just takes over. And all of a sudden you sort of feel, I can't sleep unless we get this car. You get this car, somebody runs into it a week after you get it, and who cares? Lust kind of works like that. It just does not deliver. And so the Bible says, take control of your eyes. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you expose yourself to. You know, the old computer programmers used to say, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, just be careful what it is that you feed your mind and imagination. And uh, exercise control of your hands. We need to be careful about how we express affection to other people. We have to be really careful, especially these days, about only doing those things that are appropriate. Okay? That's incredibly important. Uh, we're running into a situation where men in particular, uh, but women too to some degree, are being called for violating personal boundaries and going places they didn't have permission to go. And so maybe this is a season where all of a sudden Jesus' teaching makes a little more sense to us because we know that you know, even in our society people are being called on violations. And then exercise control over your feet. Just be careful where you're going and why you're going there. The Bible says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he also will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And the challenge some of us when we kind of fall to temptation is we don't look for that way out. <laughs> we don't look for it. Uh, but he says, look for it. God is in this with you. He's going to help you. And so he says, okay, guys, you've heard it said that uh, adultery... Uh, is out of bounds, but he said it, it's, it's bigger than that. It is the lustful thought that's out of bounds. That's why the kind of righteousness we're looking at exceeds that of the simple outward rule-keeping of the scribes and Pharisees. Okay, so that's one issue, and again, there's a lot more we could say on that, but that's kind of the introduction to that particular um, uh, concept. And then he moves on to talk about a related concept in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. And um, this is one that is based not on one of the Ten Commandments, but on one of the Mosaic Commandments, or at least it was interpreted as a commandment. Divorce begins with selfishness or self-centeredness. That's what you can put in the blank. Uh, I was looking for a word to kind of cover this base, and that was the best that I could do. Um, divorce begins when you no longer think about we, you only think about me. Once you start to think about me, that it's all about me, then there's, the relationship is in trouble because relationships by their nature are supposed to be about we. 
So what does a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees look like? What kind of righteousness kind of puts us on that pathway towards heaven? Jesus continues his teaching uh, concerning the spirit and the letter of the law with this third illustration, and this is how he says it. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife may give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, don't these words sound absolutely bizarre in our culture? They actually sounded a little bizarre in the culture when Jesus said them in the very first place. What in the world is Jesus fishing at here? Why does he put this in here? When people give themselves to the letter of the law, they are always looking for loopholes. Ever notice that? So, um, you know, who is my neighbor? <laughs> you know, I know I'm supposed to take care of my neighbor, but who is my neighbor, okay? Loopholes, looking for, looking for ways to kind of wiggle under the full weight of, of what is being required. And nowhere is that more evident than in the area of divorce. Uh, when one or both parties to a marriage want out, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, any kind of excuse will do to justify uh, breaking the covenant. And um, this is especially the case for the partner who is seeking an out for whatever reason. Now, where does this come from? Where is Jesus coming from? I need to share with you uh, a little bit uh, about Jesus' perspective. Because Jesus, in his mind, said marriage matters. It matters to God. It is always matters to God. It's not a trivial thing. It's something God cares about. And so we read in Matthew 19 that some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Uh, haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning, okay, God's going back to the original design, he said the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so to understand the spirit of what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand God's original design for marriage. He talks about marriage being something that is promised before God, not just a legal contract or even a union of mutual love. God has high regard for the marital covenant. And at the heart of the marriage stands a commitment, not a feeling, but a commitment. And so running out of romance isn't necessarily a legitimate reason for running out of a marriage before you've given a chance to rekindle the romance that has been lost. Um, and so divorce was not God's original design. That's what goes in the blank. And we all know, either from our own personal experience or the life of friends or family, that divorce is always devastating, heart-rending experience. There are no clean divorces. There aren't, really. Not only are marriage partners scarred, the collateral damage extends to children, family, and friends. I sort of feel messy divorces are the only kind there are, really. And in setting rules for human relationships, God's intent was to keep people from getting hurt by sinful and selfish choices that all too often lead to relational disaster. And so what's Jesus talking about when he says, you've heard it said that um, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Well, of course, this looks back to the Old Testament and a season in the life of the people of Israel where um, poor and sinful choices were being made 
And people who had made a decision to marry someone uh, decided that they were no longer happy with it and they were looking for an out. And the reality in those days is if a man rejected a woman, if he kind of threw him out of her home, um, she really had no other source of income. She had really other no support and identity. I mean, it was devastating to be kind of thrown out uh, on your own. And so rather than sort of, you know, creating a situation where like prostitution or selling yourself was the only option, Moses permitted that if there was a certificate of divorce, people could be remarried. It wasn't God's ideal. It was a concession. It was not a command. The Pharisees treated that as a command. It was never a command. Moses never meant it to be a command. It was a concession to deal with the whole issue of sin in human relationships. And so there was a big debate going on between um, uh, a couple of rabbis at the time. And one rabbi taught that the marriage bond could be resolved for anything from burnt toast to, you know, I just, when the sun came up, I didn't like the look of you. And uh, another rabbi was saying, no, the covenant is God's covenant, and you need to hold true to it. And so, you know, you can imagine different people sided with different people dependent upon, you know, their own particular circumstances. And so Jesus says this, Moses permitted, not commanded, but permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, wow, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. I don't know what led the boys to kind of make that conclusion, but they sort of thought, you know, marriage should have an out clause of some kind or another, and Jesus is closing that particular door. What Jesus is trying to say here is that the scribes and the Pharisees missed the whole point of Deuteronomy 24 and 1. The second point that Jesus makes here is that God's plan still stands. Divorce is not an option in God's eyes, except in very ex exceptional circumstances. So it thus goes in the blank. Divorce is not an option in God's eyes, except in very exceptional circumstances. And so failure to take in God's direction, Jesus said, results in the divorcing parties making themselves adulteries if they remarry. Now, isn't that kind of throw you for a loop? Haven't you ever wondered, what in the world is Jesus digging at here? As best as I can understand where Jesus is going with the argument, this is my best understanding of this really kind of enigmatic statement right here. Jesus appears in this passage to leave the door open for remarriage only in the case of porneia or sexual unfaithfulness. That would be a permissible divorce. Divorce is still not God's plan, and I know a lot of people who have dealt with um, unfaithfulness who have still managed to find a way to reclaim their relationship and stay together, but sometimes the act of betrayal totally devastates the relationship and it just can't be pulled back together again. Uh, that's what I've learned just from my personal experience. And so Jesus is saying, you know, divorce isn't God's intent, but because of people's hardness of heart, there is one condition, um, unfaithfulness, that breaks the marriage bond that, you know, I would still fight for the marriage, but if it cannot be saved, it's, it's, divorce is permissible. And so when sinful and selfish choices are made that destroy the relationship and violate the major covenant, then there could be um, uh, acceptable grounds for divorce. And so Jesus offers the possibility of divorce on the basis of infidelity as a concession, not as a recommendation or not as a direction, but as a concession 
to provide order in the face of human sinfulness. But, of course, the very first thing that he talks about is, you've heard it said that, you know, you can be divorced for any reason. And so he deals with that issue second. In that culture, divorce was allowed among some for the flimsiest of reasons. And if I follow what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that unless marital unfaithfulness has broken the marriage covenant, all other trivial reasons for uh, divorcing don't really serve to break the original covenant. Like marital unfaithfulness would do it, but burning the toast won't. And so if you reject your spouse on the basis of a flimsy evidence and that person has to remarry for the same reasons that I explained to you before, I mean, it wasn't like you could kind of go on some kind of government assistance. There wasn't that. You needed to be connected with someone. Um, he said a person who is, is divorced trivially uh, really is putting in the situation of um, causing their uh, divorce partner to commit adultery because there wasn't marital unfaithfulness that broke the bond. As nearly as I can understand, I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Yes, he says, there are at least just, you know, one, maybe two, and I, he doesn't bring it into here, that the Bible talks about uh, the other example is if a unbelieving spouse says, I can't handle this religion thing, I'm out of here. There is a place in the scripture where it deals with that particular issue where a non-believing spouse bails out on the family because of religious reasons and whether or not that person is kind of bound then once the relationship has been broken. But we'll save that discussion for another day. This one is talking particularly um, about divorce because of unfaithfulness. And so, um, so the Pharisees caught up with the letter of the law were preoccupied with what the grounds for divorce were, Jesus was focused on, let's save the marriage. That's what Jesus had in mind. And the concession he makes is not to make sin acceptable. That's not where Jesus is going with this. But he wants to combat it and prevent it from compounding. Um, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And Jesus died to set us free from the guilt of our sin. There can be a new beginning. We can have the freedom to start again. God can forgive and restore in the area of divorce if there's repentance and a recommitment to the will of God. But sometimes the damage of divorce is irreversible, and Jesus and God would like us to avoid just having to go down that road at all. And so that's why there's such a high value for marriage. And that's why we shouldn't step into it carelessly or, or um, thoughtlessly. We really want to make sure that this decision we make is you know, as God helps us, it's you and me, Davey, whatever comes. That's the marriage vow. Slightly paraphrased uh, for this occasion. So um, uh, this is the uh, uh, position of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada on this particular issue. Sometimes when this issue comes up, people sort of say, well, where, where is Broadway on this? Like, how do we deal with this? What's kind of our official position on this? And has a church that belongs to the fellowship, I just thought I would just mention that this is actually in our statement of fundamental and essential truths, just to give you some kind of response. Um, this is the POAC position, the, the position we take as a congregation. Marriage can only be broken by porneia, which is understood as marital unfaithfulness involving adultery, homosexuality, or incest. While the scriptures give evidence that the marriage vow and the one flesh union are broken by such acts and therefore do recognize the breaking of a marriage relationship, the scriptures do recommend that most desirable option would be reconciliation, if it's at all possible. We therefore discourage divorce by all lawful means and teaching, 
Our objective is reconciliation and the healing of a marriage where union is possible. Marital unfaithfulness should not be considered so much as an occasion or opportunity for divorce, but rather an opportunity for Christian grace and forgiveness and restoration. Where all attempts at reconciliation have failed and a door, uh, divorce has been finalized, we extend God's love and compassion. And so that's kind of um, the POC statement on this issue. So finally, uh, and I am watching the time, he comes to this fourth connection about oaths and vows, which seems a little bit strange in our culture because we're not really big into oaths and vows so much other than the marriage vow and the vow you took when you became a Canadian citizen, um, you know, uh, or, or maybe in a more moderated way what you signed when you signed on to be a member of Broadway Church. You didn't make a vow, but you did sort of agree that you would kind of work with the rest of the people in a harmonious way. Uh, Oaths and vows begin with deceit or deception. That's the reason why you need oaths and vows. Because the concern was that unless you somehow or another said something like, as God is my witness, then your word couldn't be taken as uh, verifiable. And so people would make vows to kind of nail what they were saying, saying, I really, really mean it. No, I mean it this time. No, I really, really mean it. No, I mean it, okay? And so the idea of a vow was, if you made a vow, you basically said, you know, um, may God punish me severely if I'm lying to you right now. Okay. And um, what had happened in the time that Jesus was teaching is that uh, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees had allowed sort of a whole set of um, vows to be made, some which you could keep and some which you didn't have to keep. Okay. So it's like, it's, it was sort of like this, you know, if I make you a promise open-handed, that counts. But if I make you a promise and I have my fingers crossed behind my back, that doesn't count, okay? And so there was a set of vows that were going on at the time that Jesus was teaching where there were some vows that you could promise, but nobody was really expecting you to keep those promises. And then there were vows that you were really, really serious about. And so there was a sense that if you swear by this, then that's really real. But if you swear by this, there might be some wiggle room to kind of sneak out the back door. But if you just say it this way, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying in verse 33, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, don't swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or on earth, because it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair black or white. Simply yet, your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything else from this comes from the evil one. Some people have suggested, and some people have taken this to the extreme, where they're saying, you cannot take any vows whatsoever. Uh, you know, any kind of vow, citizenship, whatever, is, is not in keeping with what Jesus is teaching here. I don't think that's where Jesus is going here. Uh, Jesus never says anything about, you know, the marriage vow being something we shouldn't do, okay? God makes vows and promises that he binds himself to keep. So he's not ruling out oaths and, and, and vows, but he's just saying this. If you make a promise before God, and, and God knows all of the things we say, okay? There's not some places where, you know, Jesus hears you and some places where God doesn't hear you. Like, God is everywhere. He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient. He knows what's going on. He said, you really don't need to go to these extremes of somehow trying to dress up your promises so that they somehow count. God knows the intent of your heart. That's the issue. He knows the intent of your heart. And in Jesus' world, as in ours, tooth-telling was at a premium. 
So Jesus reverts to the third commandment to address this issue, which is don't take the name of the Lord uh, in vain. So, you know, saying, has God is my witness, I'm really, really serious, you are now bringing God into the picture. If you are making that carelessly, you're basically taking God's name trivially. It's kind of got that whole sense. It's about uh, oaths and so on and so forth right there. So um, the issue of oath-taking in the Old Testament teaching really focuses on the honesty principle. The real problem with oaths and vows is it's our way of sort of trying to wiggle out of promises that we have made. And he said, listen, rather than kind of go down that road and play those games, don't make any vows at all. Just don't. Like, don't even go there, okay? Just don't get involved in that whole bit of gamesmanship. Rather, he says, when it comes to your word, simply be truthful. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be an open book. No games playing. No kind of flim-flam. No kind of, I got my fingers crossed behind my back type of thing. Um, in his teaching, Jesus doesn't abolish uh, the law, but he goes back to the original purpose, and that was to ensure truthfulness. That's what goes in the blank. The oath-taking system of his day had become corrupt, and so Jesus said, rather than kind of make promises carelessly, don't make any promises at all. Um, every once in a while, uh, when I was getting started in ministry, somebody would come to me on a Sunday, you know, usually at the end of the service, and uh, they say, you know, pastor, will you do this, or will you do that, or will you pray for this, or will you pray for that? And of course, what does a good pastor always say? Yes, right? Because that's what good pastors do. Except from time to time, if I didn't write it down, <laughs> I would forget what it was that I promised on a Sunday. And, um, and I realized over a period of time, I finally got cured of this, that uh, people were a lot less upset with me if I said, sorry, I cannot do that, then if I said, oh, sure, I'll be there, and then didn't show up. Yeah, change is everything. So the idea is don't make careless promises. Make them thoughtfully and carefully. Um, don't try to dress up what you have to say using vows and oaths to somehow make you sound more credible. Just be credible with God's help. Um, Jesus tells his disciples simply to speak the truth on every occasion. That's what goes in the blank. An ideal society, somebody has written, is one in which no man's promise ever needs an oath to guarantee its fulfilling. Okay? And so in these three examples, these case studies, Jesus is boring from the Old Testament and saying, let me tell you about the new kingdom, the new covenant, the new culture of the kingdom, what it looks like. How do the people who are, are citizens of this new kingdom live? Well, they are people who, you know, deal with anger before it kind of, you know, flowers into murder. It's people who deal with lust decisively before it leads them to adultery. It's people who think about we before they go down the road of divorce. They are people who don't have to dress up their promises with all kinds of vows and oaths in order to be credible. They simply are credible. Do you see where... Jesus is saying, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. That's the direction that the Sermon on the Mount is going, and that's what we're being called to.